Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. Before we get to today's show, can you take care of something for us? Please rate and review Health Now wherever you get your podcasts. It will help other listeners find out about us. And if you haven't already, be sure you subscribe to the show too. You wouldn't want to miss an episode, would you? Thank you. Now, on to the show. The pandemic can really get to you, no doubt about it. From lockdowns to homeschooling and working from home, or losing your job, or much worse, a loved one, it's been stressful all around. And there are signs that this is translating into a lot more people who are depressed or anxious. In late May, the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics and the U.S. Census Bureau reported that one in three adults in the U.S. who took part in an online survey showed signs of depression or anxiety. They answered questions about how down and anxious they'd felt in the last seven days. More than 69,000 people took the survey, which was conducted in late April and early May. Those results were much higher than usual. And what about people who were already living with depression or an anxiety disorder? Have those medical conditions gotten worse for them? Most important, what helps? Is it time to step up your therapy appointments if you can afford those and consider medication? What about the lifestyle habits that can help? We're talking about all of that and more today with clinical psychologist Seth Gillihan. He hosts the Think, Act, Be podcast, and he's the author of books including The CBT Deck, Retrain Your Brain, and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Made Simple. You may have heard Seth on Health Now before or read his WebMD blogs about mental health, including issues related to the coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Gillihan, thanks for joining us today. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me back, Carrie. It feels like it's been too long. It has been, and yet not long at all, considering mm. all that's been going on. Um, let's start with that really startling statistic, the finding that one in three U.S. adults were showing signs of depression or anxiety during the pandemic this spring. Can you help us understand what that means? What would some of those signs be? And were there symptoms enough for a diagnosis? Yeah, it's a great question. And I appreciated your introduction. You said they're showing signs of anxiety and depression. So, I mean, I, I think the numbers are what they are. I mean, they're, they're startling on the face of it. And, and, you know, if we look a little deeper, I don't think it's, uh, we should distinguish between an actual diagnosis where someone meets all the criteria for a condition versus, you know, meeting the, the kind of the, what are called the cardinal symptoms, the main uh, symptoms that a person has to have to have a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So you know, in terms of nuts and bolts, it was this, it was actually only four questions that they were mm -hmm. asked. It was two about anxiety and two about depression. So the, it, was, it was a web survey. So these were not interviews, like a, a clinical interview with a professional. Uh, they were just thousands of people who took this questionnaire online and uh, rated how uh, nervous or anxious they had felt and uh, if they were having a hard time controlling their worries. Those are the anxiety questions. And then questions about depression. Are you feeling down, depressed, uh, and are you losing interest in things you're typically interested in? So those questions by themselves can't tell us whether a person has a diagnosis. Uh, you need to know for depression, for example, if a person uh, they would need to have at least three other symptoms in addition to, to those two. But it does, I mean, it, it gets our attention and it's definitely worth 
uh, paying attention to, especially, I think, for those of us in the mental health field who are seeing some of these things in our own practice, or I think for all of us who are maybe feeling things ourselves or you know, hearing our friends and loved ones uh, tell us about how, how they've been feeling down and struggling lately. In your own practice, are you hearing from people who are showing these signs and reaching out for help for the very first time? Or are you hearing more for people who have already been diagnosed with depression or an anxiety disorder who are having a particularly hard time right now? Well, in my own practice, it's, it's mostly people that I'm already seeing, but that's mainly because I, I'm not uh, accepting new patients at this time. But I, so, so the people that I'm working with, I am definitely hearing from a lot of them about the challenges because no matter what our life situation is, there's, it's going to be made difficult in some way. If we live alone, that's its own type of, of stress. If we're trying to navigate working from home and have you know, kids who are uh, doing online school, or maybe we've decided to homeschool, that's certainly a source of stress. And this is fresh in my mind as our kids just went back to school this morning. Right. <laughs> you know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so it's affecting all of us in one way or another. Now, I, I think it is, it is worth saying that there, uh, there are a lot of people who have not really uh, experienced frank anxiety or depression before who are uh, finding themselves having these kinds of experiences for the first time. Uh, and, and I do, you know, a lot of people reach out to me through my newsletter or, uh, you know, looking for a referral since they, they know that I'm not uh, seeing new people. And, and, you know, and I think a lot of this conversation was also kicked off by you know, the former first lady, Michelle Obama's uh, admission, I think talking with Michelle Norris about her own uh, struggles with what she called low grade or mild depression. So yes, that's right. That definitely yeah. elevates it in the national conversation. Yes, especially with, with that big of a, a, a following. Um, I'm curious about how this works. Is it that major things that happen in our lives, like going through a pandemic or experiencing job loss or a health crisis, actually trigger the start of these conditions in someone who doesn't have them to begin with? Or was it like a tipping point for them? Well, it's an interesting question. There, there are so many different ways to get to depression. It's, it's such a, it's kind of a, a final common pathway for a lot of different experiences. So as you well know, it can, it can happen following a major loss, like losing a loved one, losing a job, losing our health. Uh, it can follow from uh, the un, kind of unremitting stress like we're seeing during this time and, and uncertainty. For some people, it comes out of the blue, although that's, that's less common for the vast majority of us. There's, there's something that triggers it. So I think for, uh, for each of us during this time, I, I think what's important is just to consider our own situation and and maybe it, it was something where we were kind of teetering on the edge before and in the whole pandemic and, and lockdown and, and maybe job uncertainty or losing our job just kind of pushed us over the edge into real depression or overwhelming anxiety. Or maybe we've never really had to deal with those things before and people would talk about those struggles and we would kind of 
wonder what they were talking about or or maybe doubt that it was real and now we're seeing it for the first time we're like oh right mm -hmm. i get it this is a real thing so i think it's important to understand where it comes from for each of us as best we can because that's going to tell us something about how to how best we can deal with it certainly um but there's the other side of these conditions, which is, you know, an imbalance of certain brain chemicals, which can, you know, create uh, conditions like depression or anxiety for a lot of people. Does that start the condition or can life events sort of bring on those, uh, you know, brain chemical uh, changes? You know, this is really fascinating, Carrie, and this is going to surprise a lot of people. But there is no clear evidence of any kind for a, a difference in brain chemistry among people who are depressed and people who aren't. Hmm, interesting. Because that's definitely something that you hear a lot. You, you keep hearing it. It's been discredited now for quite a while. And yet it's, it's one of these things that it's kind of like a cultural meme that took hold. I mean, I think uh, drug companies were um very effective at 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 spreading that message that <laughs> right. idea that you know you have uh you have low serotonin and we have a a a drug that will make serotonin more readily available in the synapses here's how it works and they're you know very uh clear and compelling animations that that showed this at work and it stuck i remember you know being a a junior in high school and hearing that story for the first time, a oh, chemical imbalance. Okay. And, and, and it wasn't until I was well into my doctorate in psychology that I actually looked at the literature and it's like, Oh, wow. So this is a story that is based on the observation that if you give certain drugs, they'll boost uh, chemicals in the brain. And so people make the inference of oh, those chemicals must have been low in the brain, but, but all the, the good studies that have looked at brain chemicals between depressed people and non-depressed people don't find that difference. And certainly not a, a kind of predisposing factor. Like you have this brain chemistry and therefore you're set up. That's probably not uh, exactly the, the question you're asking, but I think it's important to, to, to note that because it definitely has implications for how we treat things. And if we believe that, well, this is just a difference in my brain chemistry, that's going to make us assume that we're going to need a certain type of treatment, that we're going to need a, a biological treatment. And, and actually that would not necessarily be the case. You can have a non, uh, you can have a, a, a psychotherapy that can help with a, uh, a biological difference, uh, just like a biological treatment can help with uh, our thoughts and our behavior. But I, I, I try to get the word out about this just because I think it's, uh, for whatever reason, it really has, it's been pretty, a pretty durable belief. I'm just curious if we could talk a little bit about any type of a role that, um, you know, medications might play uh, for someone who's going through like something like this. You know, some people might, their thoughts might be turning to, gee, maybe I need to think about um, some sort of medical treatment for, for this. Is there any yeah, yeah, of course. You see for that? Yeah, I'd just be yeah. curious. It's a great question, and and you know, as much as I as I downplayed the the chemical imbalance hypothesis, that's not at all to say that these medications uh, can't be really helpful 
for a lot of people. And you know, for some people, they can be not only life-changing, but life-saving. So uh, I think it's important for people to consider all the, the treatment options that might be on the table. And, um, and I think there's you know, obviously a lot of resistance uh, for a lot of us to taking medication, especially if it's going to affect our brain chemistry. So, you know, having, uh, I think it's good to have some discussions with our loved ones and, you know, with, with the doctor that we trust about, you know, what these medications are, what, can, what we can expect from them. And I mean, some people have this idea like, oh, it's going to completely change my personality or it's going right. to take. Or if I gonna, start taking it, I'll never be able to stop. Maybe right, so. I'll be on it forever. And uh, so I would, I mean, it's, it depends on who you're talking to, but, but I mean, in terms of the professional, hopefully the person has someone who's able to give a, a realistic assessment of these things. Uh, Cause some people will say like, basically like, like this is, uh, you know, antidepressants are like, it's like nothing. Like we should just put them in the water and everyone should take them. <laughs> like that's, I think there was, there was some of that kind of giddiness about these medications when they first came out. Right. It looks like listening to Prozac, but um so we don't want to downplay like, you know, yes, there can be unpleasant side effects. Uh, and, and for some people, it can be uh, rather difficult to get off the medication. At the same time, we don't want to go to the other extreme where we say like, no one should ever take these. They're poison. Uh, they're, um, you know, you're, you're going to be stuck on it forever. Uh, but, but to have a, re a realistic assessment and like we do with any medication to understand there are trade-offs and, Hopefully, as doctors prescribe these, they're, you know, considering uh, those those trade-offs and and deciding that on balance, it's going to be a net positive for a person, most likely. Is the start of these conditions also about how we respond in these situations? Like, maybe you're not sleeping well, maybe you're drinking more alcohol, eating and exercise might take a hit, and just dealing with a lot more stress than usual. Yes, yes, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, there's there's so many studies showing that it's it's really about our reactions to things that happen, and not the things themselves that that lead to how we feel, and that, that lead to uh, conditions like anxiety and depression. So this isn't to blame anyone. It's not to say like, oh, well, it's your own fault, but just to understand that we have some choice in the matter. So we may not have a choice in how we're set up to respond. So some of us are more predisposed to uh, respond in, in less adaptive ways and some in more adaptive ways. But, uh, but if we can recognize that we are, uh, th that we do have some control over what we do in the face of these things. So I think one of the, one of the most powerful things we can control are the types of thoughts that we have about what's happening. Because, I mean, this goes back at, at least a couple thousand years to the Stoics and this idea that we're, we're upset not by events themselves, but by what we make of them. Hmm. So, if, you know, there's a pandemic. And if I tell myself, uh, this is terrible, this shouldn't be happening, I can't cope with this, uh, this is going to overwhelm me, this is never going to get better, we can paint, paint a, a pretty bleak picture for ourselves and if we really buy that picture, if we mistake that for reality and not for a fiction that our, our minds are crafting, 
then we're, we're going to react accordingly. But if I instead, I think to myself, all right, this is what's happening now. This is something new. None of us have been through this before. We're going to do the best we can. We'll come together. We'll find a way through this. That's going to engender really different feelings and a different, a different behavior. I'm going to be more likely to do things that are productive and adaptive and that will create, I guess, in either case, a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If I tell myself it's hopeless, I may uh, do more things that, that we do when we expect things not to turn out well. I may kind of give up. But if I believe we're going to get through this and, and ask, you know, what can I contribute at this time? And that's going to lead to, to uh, doing things that, that help things to go as well as possible. Right. How can I treat myself well and make sure that I'm set up for success as much as possible to deal with all the challenges? Um, yeah. That kind of gets to that idea of resilience that I think we've been hearing a lot about these days as well and, and sort of the role that that can play in um, you know, mental health during such a stressful time like this. Yeah, yes, definitely. Yeah, resilience it really is so, so key because it's, I mean, certainly at this time, it's easy to say that uh, I mean, we're all gonna go through difficult times. We're all going through something as a part of this. And so it's not so much a, a question of what's gonna happen to us, but how we're gonna uh, respond to these challenges and, and what we're doing to prepare ourselves for, uh, for what's to come. Right. Like you were just saying, you know, these are, these are difficult times for everyone. And I think some people, not everyone, may have the tendency to think, well, it's not any worse for me than it is for someone else. It's not a big deal. It's just because of X, Y, and Z. But at what point should someone really consider reaching out to their doctor or another health professional if they're having signs that might signal depression or anxiety related to the pandemic? Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly if someone is having thoughts of, you know, maybe this isn't worth it. Maybe I should end my life. Maybe people would be better off without me. No one would miss me. Those types of thoughts clearly are a red flag and, and a person should reach out immediately. Definitely tell people around you and contact a professional. Right. And short of that, I think, I mean, anytime, you know, if, if we, we find ourselves kind of I, someone once compared depression to like an ocean and you, know, you, you can, if you're on the, the sand, uh, you, know, you can feel relatively safe, but as you get closer to it and you start dipping your toes into it, you're feeling that low mood. You're not totally overwhelmed by it, but if you go out a little farther, you can really feel its power and you feel that it could, it could sweep you away and pull you under and you could be lost to it. It could swallow you up. And I think if we find ourselves heading in that direction where we're finding that we're feeling gradually worse, maybe not day to day, but, but week to week, each week is a little tougher than the last. We're having a harder time pulling ourselves out. We're seeing ourselves do kind of unhealthy things to try to cope having a, a tough time in our relationships, maybe being more irritable. I would definitely err on the side of asking for help sooner rather than later. And because I'd rather make an error in that direction than to wait until it's 
really overwhelming and then it's going to take longer to pull myself out. That makes sense. That's such a, a useful analogy too. paints a perfect picture of what it must feel like um, to, to face depression like that. Yeah. It really resonated with me from my own experience with depression because it, it does just feel like this beast. Like when, like I, I heard about it obviously and, and treated it a lot, but hadn't been really in the, really in the depths of it. And, and you start to recognize, wow, like this really, I mean, it could be a kind of, it feels like it could be a one-way trip. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I think, you know, coming, coming back to dry land as, as soon as possible is the wise choice. Certainly. Um, what about people who've already been diagnosed with these types of conditions and are feeling like it's been getting worse for them during the pandemic? Well, we do know that having been depressed makes future episodes of depression more likely. And, and it, it seems to be the case, not just because I'm the type of person who gets depressed, so of course I'm going to have more depression, but, but, they, but past episodes of depression might kind of kindle future episodes where it's easier to the brain, for the brain and body to slip into that state. So there, I think it's especially important to not to be fearful of depression, but to be mindful of it and to be honest with ourselves, with how we're doing, which may not, it may not always be apparent when we're, when we're sliding down into depression, because it, it usually doesn't declare itself all at once. It's not like well, I was you know, feeling great yesterday and I woke up this morning and now I've got five symptoms of depression and I'm definitely depressed. <laughs> Gee, where did but that come from? Right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. That's definitely depression, but it's more like it's, it's subtle and insidious. It's, Oh, I don't really have the energy that I used to have. Maybe I'll kind of, you know, maybe I won't, uh, I won't work as much today or you know, we start to withdraw from things that are important to us. We don't think of it as depression. We just think like, yeah, I don't feel like doing that. I'm feeling kind of lazy. And then, uh, again, like me, uh, we can end up pretty far into it before we kind of look around and like, oh my goodness, like check, 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 check. This, these are all signs of depression. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if sometimes maybe it would take someone else who's you know a family member or friend or a loved one noticing things, changes in you as well to sort of call those out. That happens so often. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's often loved ones who really urge a family member to get help. But, um, but they also may be, yeah, the ones who are recognizing it, like, you know, this, this just isn't you, you know, what, what's up? You seem different. And, and that can be hard to hear because if we're already feeling down on ourselves, we can feel defensive and we don't want to let on that something's wrong or, or we can feel weak, like that somehow we're like, there's something wrong with us that we're not keeping it all together. But it, I mean, it really takes, first of all, it just takes a heck of a lot of strength just to get through life. And if we're dealing with depression and managing to, to keep going, I think it's, I am not, I mean, cause to celebrate is probably too optimistic, but, but I think it's something to, at some point, um, I guess to congratulate ourselves for, because we, we might feel like we're barely holding on, but, but holding on at all when we're, depressed and struggling is it's a victory in its own way and it shows a kind of strength right definitely something to honor within yourself honor yes that's a nice word 
What about someone who is maybe struggling a little more with the anxiety end of the spectrum versus depression? Do the same principles apply uh, for, for people who are facing more anxiety tends to be their problem instead of depression? Well, thankfully, yes. So for better and for worse, anxiety and depression overlap in many ways. And it's rare to have one that doesn't have some elements of the other. And, and yes, the things that help us to, that help to, to boost our mood and uh, to not be depressed tend to also be uh, anti-anxiety uh, as well. So, so things like exercise are good for both our, uh, for relieving depression and for dampening anxiety, uh, having regular routines, uh, doing things that are important to us. I think you know, what I would, what I would encourage for those who are uh, dealing with anxiety, I mean, you know, recognizing the stories like we talked about with depression, that would also certainly apply. Uh, seeing those, those anxious stories that our minds are telling us are going to come true, like everything's going to come crashing down. Just recognizing those are predictions and our we don't actually have a, a crystal ball to be able to make those uh, those types of guess, guesses about the future, but I think uh, I mean this helps for depression too. But but I think you're really coming into the moment. In I mean you can do it through meditation, uh, and it's you know you, I'm sure everyone has heard now of of mindfulness practice, but we don't have to call it anything formal. We can just call it you know being in our lives exactly as they are. Because when we're thinking about the future, we're imagining things that could happen. There's no limit to that. I mean, that, that really opens up literally a whole world of possibilities. Anything could go wrong in any number of ways and probably in ways we can't even imagine. But if we can come back to this moment, to what's actually happening right now, we can always deal with that. Even if it's really crappy, we can deal with what's happening in the moment because it's one thing and we are amazing at solving problems. We are so good at dealing with what's happening one thing at a time. So if we come back to that singular point of focus, then there's really nothing that can hurt us because either it's nothing, it's not gonna happen, it's just some, some story that our mind made up or it turns into a problem that we can work on with all the, the talents and abilities and million, millions of years of evolution that are built into us. So, so whether you're feeling anxious or depressed, dwelling in the moment, actually, even if you're not feeling anxious or depressed, it's kind of a nice place to be, but it really can, can make all the difference uh, in, in uh, stepping out of anxiety, just to step into the moment. And we can do that with something as simple as breathing in, breathing out, and just feeling ourselves and our bodies settle into this moment. That's so, there definitely is something to be said for taking things one day at a time, especially mm -hmm. during a time like we're living in now. We've talked before on this podcast about the things we can do in our daily lives, things that we were just talking about, whether that's exercise or sleep or stress management that can make a difference with other conditions. Um, with either depression or anxiety. But sometimes it can feel like those are small things in the face of something as big as what's been going on this year, you know, not just coronavirus, but things like 
racial injustice and um, you know, division within uh, the country and the world, all kinds of uncertainty. Can you speak a bit about why we tend to overlook the day in and day out things and how much of a difference they can really make? And are there any limits on how much of a difference they can make? Yes. Yeah. And you know, Carrie, this ties in back with our discussion about a chemical imbalance, because I think that's, that's part of the damage that that story has done is that it's told us, well, you know, it's not going to really make a difference what you do, you know, unless you have, unless you take, unless you're taking medication, you know, your actions really don't make a difference. But I, I always, uh, you know, when I'm working with someone who's depressed, we start with action. We start with, you know, beginning to add things back into our lives that give a sense of reward because they may not be big things and it may not be a big deal to do it. And we might think to ourselves, well, yeah, I could, I could get up every day and shower, but I mean, that's, I mean, that, that's just kind of a small thing. I mean, taking a shower, what, what's that going to do? Right. And what's doing the point? This, <laughs> what's the point? Right. And that's, I mean, first of all, it's very typical of, of our thinking when we're depressed. What's the point? It's not going to make any difference. But, you know, something may be small to do, but not doing it can be a really big deal. So if I'm, you know, seeing a friend, I mean, seeing one friend is probably not going to relieve my depression. But if I stop seeing the people that lift my spirits, that can have a, a, a huge impact on my well-being. And again, this is all stuff that I have talked about and worked with people on. And until I was in my own depression, it, it didn't it didn't hit me like what a how how again insidiously these things can disappear from our lives, and and how impoverished our lives can be, and until so our lives look like they were designed to make us depressed. Like if, if we really wanted to make someone depressed, we would, we would make their lives uh, look like ours to kind of devoid of things that make us feel a sense of accomplishment or uh, that bring us any kind of joy. So I would start, I mean, for those who are, are feeling down and, uh, and are able to work on things on their own or, or with a therapist to just you know, take a look at your schedule and see, uh, you know, are there things each day that when you're feeling well, you look forward to? Uh, and are you doing kind of the, the normal routines of daily living, which are so easy? I mean, we can, we can work from home now and uh, really never get out of our pajamas or you know, <laughs> never shower. No one's going to smell us if we, if, we're, if we haven't showered in a few days. And <laughs> So it's, you know, it's easier, I think, to, to let these things slide and to not realize like, oh, the fact that I had to get up and be somewhere every day or the fact that I had to shower and, and get a haircut, like I didn't realize that, that what, a, what a bulwark against depression that was. And, and uh, so, yes, I wouldn't downplay those things, but, but we can talk too about you know, when these things might not be enough and what their limits might be. Right. Certainly <laughs> the cure for someone's depression is not to take a shower. That's not what you're suggesting, but <laughs> <laughs> right. Just All wash away the place. low mood. <laughs> exactly. What are the things that you are finding have been helpful? You know, we've been living with this uh, pandemic for, for several months now, but I'm just curious, what are some of the things you're finding that have been 
helpful for you in terms of um, sort of maintaining your mental health as this sort of situation kind of drags on? Yeah. Well, you know, since this, uh, my gym has been closed, uh, I think you know, daily walks, uh, so getting outside, uh, getting fresh air, getting exercise, I think that's important, just making it a routine, you know, every morning or at some point during the day, uh, you know, sometimes going with the family on walks. Uh, I think that's been really important. I mean, it's been a little bit, it's been easier, probably a lot easier for me uh, than for uh, for a lot of other people in certain ways because I was already working from home. So it was easy to maintain that, that kind of structure. Um, but I think as much as possible, you know, recognizing that our needs haven't changed even though our life situation has changed so much. So I actually just recently, um, I guess about a month ago, I, I realized I had very little human contact outside of my family. Like I really wasn't in touch <laughs> with my friends. Uh, and so I, I've started having um, like uh, Zoom lunch meetings uh, with a friend of mine and, and having a regular weekly call with a very dear friend, actually my Co-author Aria Campbell Danish, uh, and and uh, and yeah, just you know, taking I think taking our our needs seriously and taking stock of our lives and doing what we can to uh, to to fill those needs, even though it's going to look different than it would look if it weren't for for COVID. Right, that's uh, something we've all had to get a little more creative about lately. But hopefully, everybody has found found their way to something that can that can give them. Uh, you know, some fulfilling moments. <laughs> yeah, and I should mention too, Carrie, uh, stress management thing has been especially important. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, I mean, it's different things for different people. It's, you know, exercise for a lot of us, but, uh, you know, finding ways just to unwind during the day. So, you know, for me, it's having a, an extended winding down routine at night as I head toward bed, you know, doing some reading, listening to music, doing some like bedtime yoga. I think those those types of things can really uh, protect our sleep, which I know so many people are are finding is more disturbed during the pandemic than it was before. Dr. Seth Gillihan, thank you so much for all of these insights and hopefully uh, some some good tips for people who may be having a bit of a difficult time uh, in the last several months. So thank you. It's a pleasure, Carrie. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you join us next time.